Welcome to Doing CX Right, a podcast where we discuss how to differentiate brands by doing customer experience right. I'm your host, Stacey Sherman, an author, award-winning keynote speaker, and mentor passionate to help you humanize business and improve experiences to achieve real results. In today's episode, I'm talking to a very special guest, Tiffany Bova, author of The Experience Mindset and Innovative Growth Evangelist at Salesforce. We explore questions that plague many businesses, such as how to provide what customers and employees really want and need. Tiffany and I share invaluable insights and practical strategies to transform your approach to growth. You're going to gain a deeper understanding of the evolving meaning of the experience mindset, especially considering the challenges posed by the economic downturn and the impact of the pandemic. But this conversation goes beyond theory. We dive into real-world examples of companies that have achieved remarkable revenue increases by prioritizing the employee experience. And as we know, that fuels exceptional customer experience. I encourage you to take notes because you can leverage the research and strategies in your own business. It's a good time to embrace the experience mindset for better outcomes and create a workplace where everyone thrives. Before we get started, please share this episode with others, subscribe to Doing CX Right on your favorite podcast channels, and visit doingcxright.com where you'll get a ton of helpful resources and insights to take your brand to the next level. Now, let's get on with the show. Hello, Tiffany Bova. Welcome to the Doing CX Right show. Oh, thank you for having me, Stacey. I'm excited to have our conversation today. Oh, me too. And I imagine most people know who you are, but just in case, please share who are you and what do you do professionally? Well, as you mentioned, my name is Tiffany Pova. I'm the global growth evangelist at a company called Salesforce. I've uh, been here a little more than seven years. Uh, I spent a decade at the Gartner Group as a research fellow covering sales transformation, go-to-market models, uh, the impact of digital on the way brands uh, engage with customers, and a slew of other things. But prior to that, I was also a practitioner. So I ran sales, marketing, and customer service, customer success for startups as well as Fortune 500 companies. Uh, so I've been in and around technology, selling, advising, um, and talking about it for almost 30 years. Mm. And why are, are you so passionate about this? I don't know if I thought I was ever going to be this passionate about technology per se. Like I'm not definitely not a propeller head in the sense that I don't didn't used to game when I was a kid, you know, or you know write code when I was a kid. It was a little different when I was a kid. We played outside <laughs> when I was a kid, um, but I was found that I was really good at sales and I enjoyed marketing and I enjoyed people. And uh, the guy I was dating at the time, really early in my 20s, had started this little technology company and asked me to come join the business. And so I did. And lo and behold, 30 years later, you know, I'm still in it. And I feel like it has been a wonderful front seat view on the changes that have happened both in society and communities and education and healthcare and business. So much of it was fueled by tech. Um, that in so many ways, I feel like I watched it happen, like I was right in the thick of it. And, and that to me was, 
I got to learn every day. It challenged me every day. I met really interesting and fascinating people every day. Like it was, I have no complaints. I, I feel very blessed to get to do what I do as, as not only a job, but as you said, as a passion. Yeah, and I relate growing up with the technology. And it's funny when I think about even my thesis when I did my master's and it says, what's the internet? (laughs) That's just hilarious to read now, but that's a different day. Well, I, I I, I literally sold my first domain name. Sold, sold a domain name in 1996. I bought my first domain name in 1996, 1997. So literally, <laughs> I was running, you know, a sales marketing and customer service cloud-based business in 2000. I was Eloqua or Eloqua, depending on how you say it. I was their beta client. I was Constant Contact's beta client. Like I've been on this worldwide web internet journey for a minute, so it has just been such an incredible ride. I love that. And I have to add one more thing to this, which is when I was at AT AT&T back in the day, and my job was to sell WorldNet, dial-up service, and why that's the best thing. (laughs) It's just hilarious. So tell me, what is one fun fact that people may not know about you? Um, I don't have my MBA. (laughs) So, you know, often people are like, oh, you know, you do all these things. Like, where'd you go to B school? I'm like, yeah, don't have my MBA. So I don't know, maybe that's a fun fact since we're talking about business that they may not know about me. Yeah, and you're successful in spite of it. So I think I think uh, education is transforming anyway. But let's get to the meat of the show. So this is the Doing CX Right show. Let's start with what does customer experience and doing it right mean to you? It's a great question because I have been trying to answer this since 2008. I was part of a team when I was at Gartner that made the prediction that the chief marketing officer would spend more on technology than the chief information officer. And when we made that prediction, it was very early. Um, Everyone, not everyone, but you know, the market was sort of like, oh, you know, there's no way that the chief marketing officer is going to spend money on tech. It must be like search engine optimization or online advertising. We're like, no. We literally meet in like servers, storage, networking, reference architectures, UI designers, like design thinking people, like application developers, like we literally meant tech. And it wasn't for the, na- the, the pure fact of like buying technology for technology's sake. It had everything to do with customer experience. It had everything to do with the fact that we believed that the changes in digital engagement between brands and their customers was going to be won or lost on the experience that they had. And we knew that the IT leaders were so focused on keeping the lights on, right? And the infrastructure that ran the business, who was paying attention to the technology or the digital interactions that a customer was having with the brand. And so that really kind of created this new kind of chief marketing officer getting a seat at the executive table, chief customer experience officers or chief customer officers all were sort of offshoots of the fact that this was happening, that there was spend um, taking place around technology to be better at customer experience. So that's just a little bit of history because I think that people don't realize when that kind of came into focus as it related to tech, not that customer hasn't been important since the beginning of time, right? But I'm talking about using tech in that way. 
Um, so I'd say that for me, it's the sum of all touch points that a company has with a customer online or offline with a human or not with a human. So anything, right? It could be how clean is the lobby or your restrooms in your office? Like, you know, how uh, pleasant is the valet at your restaurant? to how clean is the menu, then how's the food, right? How's the waiter or waitress? And, you know, all of that plays a part. Each little step um, plays a part in the totality of what a customer feels about a brand based on the experience that they have. Mm, I love that. The experience mindset. Tell us about that. What does that mean? And has it taken on new meaning now? Well, I'd say that, look, through some of the research that was done prior to uh, what was done for Experience Mindset, um, we found, uh, it was a Salesforce uh, state of marketing study, that 88% of customers um, feel the experience they have with a brand is as important as the products and services that they sell, is as, as, as important, 88%. We thought that that would hit you know, even 100%, um, maybe 2025 because of the pandemic that might push out a little bit. But what that says is, look, people will remember the experience they have with a company almost longer than the price they paid. I always say, remember the last time you caught an Uber. Stacy. the last time you caught an Uber, do you remember it? Yes. Okay. Do you remember what you paid? No. Do you remember if the driver was too talkative, if the music was loud? Did you fear for your life? You know, or was it a pleasant experience? Was the music nice? Did the car smell nice? Like you remember that much longer than the price you might have paid. Yes. And I remember whether the Uber driver got out of the car and helped me with my luggage to put it in the trunk. There you go. All part of the experience, right? All part of the experience. If you went to a restaurant and the food was spectacular and the service was terrible, would you go back? Most people say no. Um, it would depend how much you had in the loyalty bank. Like, we, I've gone yes. a lot. Food is great. Service is usually good. Wasn't good. Give them a pass. Might have been a bad night. You give them a pass, right? Because of that loyalty bank, you're willing to go back. If you get a second and third terrible experience, then you're like, ah, oh, that's too bad. Like it used to be great food and great service. Now it's great food and terrible service. It's only a matter of time before the food goes too. So I'm not going to go back. Or if the food was just good and the service was spectacular, would you go back? Sure. Like, absolutely. So we make decisions on experience, you know, all the time. But the experience mindset actually leans into the fact that we've over-pivoted to customer experience, unfortunately, at the expense of the employees, of the waiter, of the call center rep, of the sales rep, of the field service technician, whomever it might be, the guy working, you know, the ramp service at an airline, you know, on the tarmac, at the hotel, cleaning the, whatever it is, we've left them behind where we've made billions of dollars worth of investments technically to reduce the effort for customer in order to increase the experience of customer, we have unfortunately, and it's an unintended consequence, I want to believe, we've increased the effort for employee while at the same time decreased their experience. Mm, that's amazing and a lot to delve into that. Can you share some examples in the research you've done with your book that what are examples that you see, who's doing it right? And what does that even mean? Yeah, so we, how this all started was I was standing on stage. I gave you a little history of, you know, 
why I've been so focused on CX for so long. My first book, Growth IQ, my very first chapter was customer experience. It was 10 paths to growth, first chapter, sort of all about the customer. Customers are true north. Like they will set you free, right? Nine other paths. Mind you, I missed employee. I talked about them a little bit in the customer experience chapter, but I didn't give them nearly enough sort of respect or coverage in the book when I talked about growth. So in many ways, experience mindset is the 11th path to those 10. It's kind of a little bit of a, uh, let me make up for the fact that I didn't pay enough attention to it. Um, But what happened was, I was standing on stage and I said, I didn't think it was a coincidence that Salesforce is a great place to work. It's one of the most innovative companies in the world. and It's the fastest growing enterprise software company. I'm not the first person to say, happy employees, happy customers, get those two things right. You're going to get greater growth. But could I prove it? So we looked in the US publicly traded companies. We mapped out across a two by two quadrant, sort of those that were doing well in CX and EX, those that were doing well in one, not the other, one that was doing you know well in the other and not the other, you know what I mean? And so we got all four and lo and behold, those that were doing well, according to those metrics we could see publicly, um, were growing at a 1.8 times faster growth rate than those that were not. So for a billion dollar brand, it was a $40 million impact. Now, if you're listening to this and you're like, I'm not a billion dollar brand, if you're a million dollar company, you can do the math. If you have a 3% growth rate, now could you get 1.8x? If you have happier employees, your customer satisfaction goes up. If your customer satisfaction goes up, your employees are happier because they're not getting yelled at by your customers all the time. So there's this flywheel effect if you can get both right. So because they were publicly traded, it's the normal suspects, right? It's a Southwest, it's a Nordstrom's, it's a Hilton Hotels, it's a Chick-fil-A, it's a Whole Foods, it's a Trader Joe's, it's a, you know, the normal ones that we would normally see, right? Because of what I just said, publicly traded, US only. We, it then inspired us to say, we want to learn more. I want to understand. And I want to be really clear here. I am not an employee expert. I'm not an HR expert. I'm looking at the moment that matters when an employee touches a customer. Like at that moment, that experience that they have, what are the aspects of the employee's job, role, systems, tools, training, you know, processes, all the things they have to deal with? How does that play a part in the customer experience? And could we qualify what those are and quantify what those are, what those are? And we were able to. And so that's where it started to get really interesting. Um, and when we began sharing it globally uh, at roundtables, executives were, you saw the light bulb start to go off um, that there was so much opportunity here that it was untapped. Mm. I notice that, and I'm curious your view, that when you talk about HR and the employee experience, there's clearly your CX people and they're focused on that customer experience. But what happens is the employee experience, there's a assumption HR is employee experience, but they're actually focusing on benefits and all those other financial stuff. So there's an assumption which creates a gap. Who owns the employee experience and really understanding what do they care about? Do you see that trend that I'm, that kind of, um, the, the company silos that create that? And you nailed it. Look, when we first started sharing, I probably did 100 roundtables with eight to 10 executives on it around the globe. So 
you know, I talked to a number of people and I got asked three questions pretty consistently, no matter where I was, what size company, what industry, et cetera. If it's so obvious, happy employees, happy customers, greater growth, why isn't anyone doing it? Why isn't everyone doing it? And in some cases, why are we doing it, right? But then the second one was, who owns employee experience? To your point that you just said, Stacey, right? Like customer experience is either the chief customer officer or the chief marketing officer. And people would view that as HR, right? The chief human resource officer, the person who is responsible um, for benefits and vacations and um, things like that, hiring and compensation, all those things that HR might take care of. But when we start talking about the employee experience and I say, okay, well, outdated tech, siloed data, broken processes are sort of the top of the heap of what employees say is holding them back from doing their job effectively. Who owns that? If I asked HR leaders, they'd be like, we don't own that. IT would be like, well, of course we own that. And I go, great. Who's setting the direction for what we're doing for employees? Because I know the chief customer or chief marketing officer has journey mapped the heck out of every step of what a customer does with your brand. Like there's thousands of applications that'll track every nit and gnat of what a customer does with you. Do you do the same kind of employee journey mapping for them to open a ticket, close a ticket, make a sale, you know, launch a product, um, you know, deploy someone in the field, do a return, whatever it might be, have you journey mapped that process? Then all of a sudden you see everybody going, well, no, we do it for the customer. And that's what we found for the research. Nobody owns it. And then the third thing we heard was, and by the way, that's why I called it experience mindset because I am not suggesting that we have now a chief employee experience officer. I did it with chief marketing, chief customer, chief customer experience, not doing it with this one. Because it is a mindset that if you are going to make a decision for the customer, and for those of you on the on the, listening to this, most of you, this is what you do for a living. I want you to just take a pause and say, hold on. What's the implication to our employees? If I say we're going to do video 24-7 because that's what our customers want and we do what our customers want, do we have the call? Do we have people trained on how to do that? Do we have enough headcount to do it? Do they have the right tools to do it? What if someone comes in on a chat and then wants to video? What do they do? Is it a kludgy process for the employee? Do they have to hop between 10 applications to deliver these compelling and amazing experiences? Because who are the keepers of your customer experience promise? Hmm. Stacey, who are the keepers of that promise? The employees. The employees are the keepers of the promise. They have to deliver it. Not the chief customer experience officer, not the chief marketing officer, not the chief information officer, the individual employees. So the third thing I, I heard was, how do I measure it? So if yeah. we have a, it's obvious, why isn't anyone doing it? Who owns it? Then right behind it was, how do we measure it? And those tend to be the kinds of um, expert mindset of, well, if we're going to do something, we have to measure it, manage it. What's the progress? You know, who is responsible for it? Is it tied to our executive compensation? Like, by the way, customer experience has been. If we do net promoter score, do we have ENPS? If we do customer effort score, do we have an employee effort score? If we do customer satisfaction, do we have employee satisfaction score? I just want a little balance between the experience between the customer and those that are responsible for delivering that experience 
day in and day out. Now, I know we're both in this experience management profession, (laughs) but put that aside for a second. This, what we're talking about is human basics. And it's fascinating to me that we actually have to remind people to do the basics. That's what this is. It's, it, it is a little bit of the basics, yes. But I would say I feel like, and the research proved it out, we've over-pivoted to the customer at the expense of all else. So through the surveys, executives were literally saying, of course I care about my employees. Of course I want them to be successful and satisfied when they come to work. But it's customer experience above all else. Or, you know, yes, I, I care. But I don't manage or measure that. And my compensation isn't tied to that. My compensation is tied to customer. And so some of this is that we've lost sight because the labor market, the working market has been forever changed through the pandemic. That power between the employer and the employee has changed. Similarly, between brand and customer, it has changed, right? With one click, the world changed. Like immediately it used to be, I used to have to go somewhere and whatever was most convenient. Now convenience is in the palm of our hand and friction has gotten way low, right? And the experience has gotten much better. So now we start saying, why is my experience getting an Uber so much better than my experience booking a appointment to see my doctor, (laughs) right? Like- (sighs) Can it not be just as easy? And when people would say, I don't want to be Uberized. It wasn't that they were going to have someone come in and start a rideshare in their industry. It was the about the ease, the lack of friction, an easy experience. It's very intuitive, real time, personalized. All the words we use is not happening uh, for employees. Mm. What's your view as we're talking about Uber for a second? The concept that you and I as riders are rated. We're not just rating them, they're rating us too. And not a lot of companies are doing that. It's, it's a very different model. What, what's your view on that? Well, I think it is appropriate, right? Because you are sitting in someone's car that they own, yeah. right? And how do you behave? Similar to kind of what you were just saying, like this is the basics, like human decency, like be kind in the back of the car. As a driver, (laughs) be kind. As a passenger, be kind. Like get out of your car and help them with their bags if they need some help, you know, or have a little pride in the fact, you know, there's a difference between a taxi that they don't own, taxi driver does not own, and a car that an Uber driver probably owns. There's more pride in this is my car. I want to keep it clean. I want it to smell nice, you know, all of those things. A taxi, not so much, right? It's just like, wow, like this looks like it went through a Saturday night, you know, and it's Tuesday. So you you all of a sudden see that if you're going to do that, then it it puts an onus on, it can't, you can't just rate me. You're in my personal space too. Were you nice to me or were you rude to me? Because if you can only say I was rude to you, it doesn't let me say, well, you were rude to me too, kind of a thing, right? Um, and then it matches you right? The algorithm gets smarter and smarter. And so if you are a well-rated passenger, you get a well-rated driver. You know, if you're a well-rated driver, you get more well-rated passengers, right? And you get jumped to the front of the line. So there's benefit in just being a decent human when you're sitting in the back of the car of an Uber driver. (laughs) But I, I, I laugh when I actually hear people say, what's your rating? What's, I look at my rating, like it, it's, 
it's almost a game, but yet it's an interesting concept that we as customers are rated. And I question if there's other applications of that. Um, but your your explanation, yeah, makes total sense. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if like your doctor could rate you or your dentist would rate you, you know, because the rating is really, you know, maybe they could do it for something like Angie, right? Like An- Angie's list, right? Something like right. that, right? Where someone is rated for their work. Well, you should be rated for, you know, being a customer because they're coming into your home was, were you not polite, et cetera, et cetera. So I think in that kind of service business, yes. uh, you know, maybe so it makes sense. Yes, yes. So going back to um, Salesforce and the research uncovered and all of that's fueling CX. So for lessons that people are craving, what would you say to the audience? What can they do both if they're new to the CX world and want to start versus those that are more advanced and want to take their brand to the next level. So those two different mindsets, what's your advice? Uh, If you've been doing it for a while and you want to take your brand to the next level, you have to have a beginner's mind. If you have a fixed mindset, like I know what I'm doing, I've done it before, I've seen this before, so I'm going to do Mm -hmm. this. I know this won't work here. We tried it, it failed in the past. I'm not going to do it again. All those things, get out of your own way and find some space for a beginner's mindset, right? Where you give yourself a little time and space every single day to challenge the assumptions you have in the business. And the Mm. best way to do that, now this is for the, I'm starting out my career. The best way to do that is to go be in the business. So I use Undercover Boss as a fantastic example. Like, I watch that show, kind of everyone in my household needs to leave because I have a full-blown argument and conversation with the TV on a regular basis. Uh, And part of this is, it is shocking to me that leaders did not know this is what was going on in their business. Yeah. The only way you don't know is if you manage from the four walls and you never leave your office. Like if you're wasting time putting hair and makeup on at the beginning of Undercover Boss, why waste that expensive TV time? No one would recognize you anyway because you never leave your desk. So go sit in the call center. If you care about customer experience, hear how customers are being um, taken care of and serviced from your call center. And I don't mean like listen in because you want to scold somebody. I mean, listen in to go, wow, I thought that process on paper, on the PowerPoint, when I got approval from the executive team made sense. When I saw it in action, makes no sense, (laughs) right? And so get out of your chair, go sit in the call center, go on sales calls go on service calls. Like just literally watch Undercover Boss and say to yourself, you own a retailer or you are a marketer for a retailer? Have you gone into the stock room? Like, do you see what the store looks like? Is it clean? Are people trained? What is going on in the business? And you can make much better decisions, more informed decisions when it comes to experience. So I'd say that that, whether you are starting out or uh, you're mature in the CX, you know, sort of life cycle, Uh, I'd still say spend time with your employees just like you spend time with your customers. Customer advisory board, employee advisory board. Like you have the ability, even though you might only own marketing or customer experience, to bring the respective parties together and say, listen, I went and sat in the call center. They have to hop between five applications 
And I see them wasting about three minutes each time. And over the course of the hour I sat there, it probably cost us 25 minutes worth of that employee's time jumping through applications and the customers weren't happy with it. Can we fix that? Like take ownership similar to the fight you took for customer ticket for employee. Yeah. I love that you said that. And my biggest learning was I've never been a mechanic. I've never been in the union. I worked for an elevator company and I would do a ride along with the technicians and I'd spend a day in their their life. I learned more on that ride along than I did probably a year in that corporate office. (laughs) So I love that you said that. Yes. And look, the the, uh, Tom Peters in his book, In Search of Excellence, in the early 80s, wrote all about it. Management by wandering around. MBWA. And the other was caring. The other was being kind. Nothing's really changed. Um, And there's a reason that Tom Peters wrote the foreword to my book, The Experience Mindset, because I learned everything about the power of experience very early in my career. It was the first business book I ever read in the 80s. Was uh, was his, and it still stands true today. I I don't think I'd change a word. He might change some of the stories and change some of the characters and executives because obviously it's been it's been some time. But yeah. the foundation of that was what you just described: managed by wandering around, not just those that report to you, not just leaders, individual contributors. Go talk to them and talk like you care. Listen, action, and then you know watch how all of a sudden satisfaction, willingness, and engagement goes up. So beautifully said. In terms of leadership, we're getting close to the end here. Is there advice that was given to you or that you're giving to others besides Tom Peters back in the day and all that you learned there? But in your current space, is there something that you want to pass along that there was something that someone told you because of an experience that you had. Does anything stand out? A leadership tip? Well, I would I would definitely say that that Tom Peters story, right, threads through a lot of the stories that I share in the book. We have Uber Jolet, who was the former CEO of Best Buy. And in his first two weeks, He literally wore a name tag that said CEO in training and went and stood and worked in the store for a week and then worked in another one for another week. You hear every once in a while, this new CEO of Starbucks going and being a barista for an hour a day or an hour hour per month. I'm like, go for a full day, like work a whole shift. Like, you know, this least least we can sort of do uh, for our employees. It, that just rings true. And so every time I hear that a, a, that a C-suite executive does that, it's rare that then it makes news. It makes news, which tells you people don't do it. People don't do it. And even with Undercover Boss, and I joked about it, but there is a perfect example of how people just don't do it. And so I think that active asking, that very intentional listening, and then having the courage to go, we're not doing this very well. We need to fix it. And starting to really lean into what is the culture of our company when it comes to yeah. our people. And it all boils down to, to your question, right? That with these conversations of these high-performing organizations, I cannot emphasize enough how they get this connection between employee and customer. 
And so they're very hyper-focused on employee. This isn't about first and second. Like we're customer first or we're employee first. It's not a fight. It's a let's be more balanced that if you're going to do something for customer, make sure it's okay for employee. If you do something for employee, make sure it's okay for customer. If you get just nothing else out of the book or this conversation, that the next CX meeting you have with your leadership team, just take a pause and say, who are the keepers of our customer experience? Promise. People mm-hmm. will say employees. And that it's, what are we doing to make sure they have what they need to deliver what we are promising? Are we failing them? Then you start to have really rich conversations. I think that would be the best advice I could give. Excellent. And my last question for you, if you could go back in time to your 20-year-old self based on what you know now that you didn't know then, what would you tell younger Tiffany? Um, I was a high-performing sales rep, individual contributor. Um, And when high-performing sales reps do really well, the next step is you become a manager. And so I wasn't a great manager. So I always say, sort of in my late, my sort of early 20s, right? So I started kind of in my middle 20s. In my early 30s, middle 30s, I was now a manager, then I was a VP, then I was an SVP. And with every sort of promotion, it didn't necessarily mean I knew how to manage people any better. People Mm -hmm. didn't really invest in that side of my career path. I would hope that I would be a better manager now if I could go back knowing everything I know now. So I would tell my 20-year-old self to actually spend time on the people side of the business more than just the hard charging, right? Delivering of um, the expected results. Um, mm. It wasn't that I didn't care about my people because I did, right? I, I, I loved who I worked with. I, you know, they said I was a great manager, but I absolutely know now I could have been, I could have been way better. So that, mm. that's probably a miss for me. Yeah. I also think that the culture and society we live in now it has made us more aware and sensitive. I mean, diversity, equity, inclusion wasn't a conversation at that time. So I, I think that if we were born now, then then it, it would have been more natural. Maybe. I mean, you know, I was in tech for, I've been in tech almost 30 years. I'm sure you could imagine Um, as your listeners will as well. When I was sitting at the executive table 25 years ago, I for sure was one of the only women, if not the only woman sitting at the table um, or selling tech or meeting with CIO. There was no female CIOs. You know, there was no female, you know, leaders in tech companies. Uh, I think Carly Fiorina might've been the first uh, Fortune 500 female tech CEO when she took over HP. And, And that was, you know, sort of late. Oh, that was early 2000s. So, you know, it's just, I think it's a very different time. But, but I also believe that um, coming out of the pandemic, we learned a lot about the importance of taking care of our people. Not that it wasn't important mm-hmm. before, but I think it really shined a light on that. And I just hope we don't snap back to the bad habits of pre-pandemic. We don't need to stay all the way where we were, but I definitely don't want to go back to where we were either. I think we should take those really great practices and things that worked so well for us during that time and continue to apply them um, in business today. And I'm going to add one more to that. And take care of our people and self-care, especially at our age group right now. I'm learning more about what that means. So take care of your people, but you can't take care of your people if, unless you're really whole and good too. 
Well said. Well, thank you so much for being here. And in the show notes, I'm going to have the link to your websites and social channels and your new book. And I know people are going to definitely reach out. And uh, thank you so much for your wisdom today. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining today. I hope you will apply the lesson shared and also requesting if you would leave a review on Apple, it would mean a lot. Head over to doingcxright.com to learn more ways to connect with me and improve your CX. Until next time, I'm Stacey Sherman, Doing CX Right.